0: Whether it's Baker's Simple Truth Turkey or Mac and Cheese with Murray's English Cheddar or pie made with fresh Cosmic Crisp Apples, there are many dishes we look forward to sharing during the holidays. And Baker's has all the fresh ingredients you need to turn today's holidays into tomorrow's memories. Baker's, fresh for everyone. And right now, you can save when you shop your faves. Just buy six or more participating sale items and save 50 cents each with your card. Baker's, fresh for everyone. According to legend, one day back in 1529 some miners in the lower Saxony region of Germany were out digging in an area near the Ore Mountains when they spotted something that frightened them along the banks of a river. It was a large hairy man, much taller than they were, dragging a club behind him. There was a female near him as well who he stood protectively by. The problem was this giant also stood directly between the miners. In the area they were trying to explore the men were certain that a large silver deposit could be found just beyond where the creature stood the miners tried to shoo the creatures away but they wouldn't budge and instead they began to react equally as aggressive back towards the miners by that point the men felt they had no choice so they shot the creature with arrows after which the female fled into the woods the miners would later prove correct in that they did find a large silver deposit just beyond where they encountered the creature it was here on this location that a town would be founded a place named after the strange creature the men killed a town they called wildeman or wild man in english Throughout history, you can find countless tales of so-called wild men of the wilderness. These large, hairy savages were said to live in the woods, and were often described as being aggressive to those who entered their territory. Perhaps the earliest known mention of such a wild man would be that of the Enkidu, in the Mesopotamian Epic of Gilgamesh, written more than 4,000 years ago. Unlike a lot of wild man stories, the Enkidu was actually tamed after being taught the ways of the civilized world by a prostitute named Shamat. Once tamed, the Enkidu became a loyal companion to Gilgamesh. During the 14th century, the term wood woes came into use to describe a common legend of a wild man. The term wood is, of course, in reference to the forest, while the second part of the term woes most likely translates to a term to describe a being who is somehow forlorn or abandoned. Some historians believe the wood woes was actually a symbol of paganism and was used to describe one side of an ongoing struggle between rival religious groups. Another story scholars sometimes point to as a possible source for the legend of the wood woes comes from the Greek explorer Hanno, in the 5th century BC traveled to the western coast of Africa, and later described an island filled with such forlorn savages. Today we can look at this story and come to the logical conclusion that, if there's any kernel of truth to that particular legend, Hanno might have discovered a pack of gorillas. But not all such stories from history of so-called wild men have such easy explanations. Bulepja people of India and Nepal speak of a supernatural glacier being, they say is one of their hunting gods, and the ruler of all forest creatures. Throughout the mountainous regions of Mongolia, the locals speak of their own particular type of wild man, known as the Almas. One of the earliest known printed references to the Almas is in a journal written by a Bavarian nobleman named Hans Schlittenberger. During the 1420s, he was captured by the Mongols, who led him to the Tian Shen mountain range. Schlittenberger wrote after his release that, quote, In the mountains themselves live wild people who have nothing in common with other human beings. A pelt covers the entire body of these creatures. Only the hands and feet are free of hair. They run around in the hills like animals and eat foliage and grass and whatever else they can find. Schlittenberger claimed to have seen two of these wild people, a male and a female, who had been captured by a local warlord and given his presence to the Mongols who held him captive. Back during the 13th century, the English scholar Roger Bacon learned of these almas, who inhabited the high mountains of the Far East. He described how the people who lived in the region would capture the creatures by leaving out dishes of fermented liquor. Then, once the creature got into a drunken stupor, the humans would swoop in. Some stories suggest the purpose was to kill and eat the brains of the animals, for some tribes had a belief that consuming the brains could actually add to your own intelligence. Of course, eating human brains was still largely considered a taboo, so people would then move on to the next best thing, eating ape brains. A late 18th century Mongolian manuscript on natural history contains drawings and a description of the Alma that calls it a man-animal. Although there are parts of China where the belief tends to accept these creatures as being more mystical in nature, this manuscript and many indigenous people all agree that Almas are real flesh-and-blood creatures. In fact, one interesting thing about this Mongolian manuscript is that all the other creatures described in it are real, verified living animals. So if everything else in the manuscript are real, does that suggest the Alma is as well? But of all the legends of so-called ape-like wild men throughout Asia, there is one in particular that stands head and shoulders above the rest. And for that, we need to travel all the way to the Himalayas, where for centuries local Sherpas have told stories about such a creature. It's a region that is full of folklore, but also very real fear and respect for this hairy ape-man of the snow even today. It's been said that even hearing this creature's high-pitched wail could be hazardous to your health. And, according to some local legends, the reason many houses have such small windows is to ensure this creature doesn't attempt to drag unsuspecting victims out through one in the middle of the night. It's a word we know today derived from two Sherpa terms. mete meaning man-bear, and yeti, which roughly translates to cliff-dwelling bear, and sounds a lot closer to the term we're all likely familiar with. The name for this creature is, of course, the Yeti. I'm Nate Hale, and yeti or not, here I come, and this is The Conspirators. According to local Tibetan legend, there are actually multiple varieties of Yeti, one most of us likely imagine when we think of the creature as a large, ape-like being who walks on two legs and eats plants, while another variety of Yeti is thought to walk on all fours and eat meat. Either way, it's commonly believed that the Yeti is rarely harmful towards humans, choosing instead to feast on local mosses and small animals. But can such a hairy ape-like creature really exist even high up in the Himalayas, where temperatures are freezing and plant and animal life is scarce? Well, the debate rages on even today. But if you ask the locals throughout Tibet, they'll assure you the Yeti is a very real, flesh-and-blood creature. And for the most part, if you don't bother it, it won't bother you. One major problem with the idea of some large, hairy, ape-like creature roaming the wilderness is the area surrounding the Himalayas contains no known ape species. Despite the fact that most drawings and depictions of the creature are notably ape-like, in fact, the closest thing we have found in the region of anything resembling the sort of once-living creature we might think of as a yeti would be the skeletal remains that have been discovered of a long, extinct variety of massive ape known as Gigantopithecus. Fossils show this creature would have stood as tall as 10 feet, or 3 meters if you prefer, and weighed up to 1,100 pounds or 500 kilograms. But it's commonly believed among modern scientists that Gigantopithecus died out around 100,000 years ago. Still, the idea that the Yeti might be some still-living prehistoric ape remains one of the most popular theories as to what these creatures really are. According to local beliefs, the Yeti tends to live among the lower plateaus of the Himalayas and elsewhere that food is more plentiful. Although they are known to climb the higher peaks looking for food and shelter. They're also thought to be nocturnal, which only adds to the reasons these elusive creatures are more often heard than they are seen. Most Sherpas will tell you it's far more common to hear the terrifying shriek of the Yeti than to actually lay eyes on one. The hairy creature known as mete or man bear can actually be seen depicted in a number of ancient texts and temples. According to a 12th century religious text, both man and the mete share a common ancestor, although the mete is thought to be neither fully human nor fully animal. Some ancient Tibetan art depicts the Yeti realm as symbolic of the cycle of rebirth between humans and animals. For the most part, yeti stories are all described the creature as benevolent towards humans. One tale tells of a Buddhist yogi who removed a painful splinter from the foot of a yeti. In return, the grateful yeti gave the monk a tiger that he later skinned and took back to his monastery. During the 17th century, it is said that a Buddhist religious leader trekked from Nepal to Tibet, where he took up residence inside a cave in the Himalayas. It was there that he met up with a tribe of yetis he befriended and who would sometimes bring him food and water. It's claimed that when one of these yetis died, the holy man took the creature's scalp and enshrined it in the temple he built in Pangboche in 1667. That scalp still exists to today. Over time, a skeletal yeti hand would also be added to the collection. But this too would spark much controversy when in 1959, explorer Peter Byrne managed to steal a few of the hairs from the scalp along with some of the finger bones, replacing them with human bones. Yeti legends would continue to spread to Westerners throughout the centuries. In fact, it's even been said that Alexander the Great demanded his subjects bring him a Yeti to see for himself. But perhaps the earliest known mention of a Yeti in Western texts actually comes to us from a footnote In a book written in 1832 by british naturalist brian h hodgson in one chapter he writes about how no monkeys could be found throughout the lower western region of nepal but he did briefly describe how some frightened local hunters once shot at a strange hairy ape-like creature that walked upright and fled into the forest it was in the 1889 memoir among the himalayas written by british explorer lawrence waddell that we finally get the first mention of actual Yeti footprints being found. According to Waddell, these gigantic tracks were made by the, quote, hairy wild men believed to live amongst the eternal snows. In 1906, botanist H.J. Elways was trekking through the mountains when he claims to have spotted a large, hairy figure running across a field below him. Although Elways tried to publicize what he saw, he wasn't taken seriously. For the most part, the Western world really didn't get interested in the Yeti until 1921, when Lt. Charles Howard Burry discovered some mysterious tracks in the snow that he was having difficulty identifying. It was also on this occasion when Burry and an overzealous journalist accidentally gave the creature another name that has stuck to this day. Burry photographed these strange tracks and the pictures made a big splash in Western newspapers. Local laborers working for Burry told him the tracks were left by the so-called wild men of the snow. But later, when interviewed by journalist Henry Newman, Burry said he suspected the tracks might have been left by a large gray wolf. But this explanation didn't sit well with Newman, who didn't think it would sell papers. But the other story told by the Sherpas about the large hairy man, well, there was something newsworthy. But Newman mixed up the phrase Metokangmi which roughly translates to Man-Bear-Snowman, to a similar-sounding term meaning Filthy-Snowman. Newman didn't like the way Filthy-Snowman sounded, so he opted for his own catchier mistranslation, the Abominable Snowman. The name Abominable Snowman caught on with the public, and it's probably one you're all familiar with today. After that, it seemed like Yeti fever really caught on as numerous expeditions were planned to hunt for the elusive creature throughout the Himalayas. But political turmoil in the region put a halt to a lot of Yeti hunting trips. After China invaded Tibet in 1949, Westerners were, by and large, locked out of the region. In 1951, an agreement was made by the Chinese government to allow Tibet to maintain its political system and religious freedom. This opened the doors once again a crack to allow some more Western explorers back in. Most notably among these was the 1951 expedition led by Eric Shipton, which would produce what is undoubtedly the most famous photograph of a Yeti footprint ever. Shipton took photographs of several large human-like footprints at an elevation of about 20,000 feet in the mountains. It's one of these photographs where he laid out his ice axe alongside it for scale. This photo would go on to be printed practically everywhere, in newspapers, science journals, and popular magazines. It clearly shows what looks like a humanoid footprint much larger than the axe, and would have to have come from a gigantic creature much larger than any normal human. The following year in 1952, a Swiss exploration team discovered more Yeti footprints at around 16,000 feet. One of the porters from this expedition even claimed to have been attacked by the Yeti, although none of the other team members would corroborate the man's story. This all sparked so much interest in travel to the region that the Nepalese government even began issuing official Yeti hunting licenses. In 1953, Sir Edmund Hillary, during his successful attempt to scale Mount Everest with Tenzing Norgay, came across more strange tracks in the snow he couldn't identify. Then in 1954, the British newspaper The Daily Mail funded another expedition to search for the abominable snowman. It was around this time that a rather unique explorer joined the fray on the hunt for the Yeti. Tom Slick Jr. was a millionaire Texas oil man. But that's where all the images stop, because Slick didn't really fit into any neat category you might have in your mind as to what a Texas oil man should be like. He was an adventurer, philanthropist, and a peace advocate although his biggest claims to fame would be his contributions to the world of cryptozoology. Even after his expeditions to locate the Abominable Snowman, he went on to fund other hunts for the Loch Ness Monster and Bigfoot. But it's really his Yeti expeditions that made Tom Slick a household name among cryptozoologists. His father, Tom Slick Sr., used to be known as Dry Hole Tom after years of coming up empty as an oil prospector. But that nickname eventually changed to king of the wildcatters once he finally struck black gold slick senior left a fortune to his family when he died young including to his son who would go on to build that fortune even further after senior died his widow bernice married his business partner charles urschel who had once been married to slick senior's sister who also died young it's notable to point out that at one time urschel was kidnapped at gunpoint by legendary gangster Machine Gun Kelly, who held him for ransom for 9 days and was only released after Kelly made off with $200,000 of ransom money. Later, Urschel's testimony would prove vital in Kelly's capture and conviction. It was actually during Kelly's arrest that he famously shouted out a new nickname for the FBI that has stuck around ever since. Don't shoot G-Man, he called them, but I digress. Slick Jr. went to Yale, and it was there he read about a 1928 expedition by President Theodore Roosevelt's sons, Kermit and Theodore Jr., where they shot and killed a giant panda. This is probably what sparked Slick's lifelong search for his own undiscovered species. Slick actually made a trip to Loch Ness around this time, looking for that elusive creature as well. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little... Or a lot. Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. After graduating from college, Slick focused his time on expanding the family business. He and his brother established an early cargo air freight service, and they began buying up mineral rights throughout South America. He also began investing some of his fortune into scientific philanthropy, including starting up the Southwest Research Institute, one of the biggest scientific research and development nonprofits in the United States. He also started a smaller organization known as the Mind Science Foundation, which was aimed at exploring the human consciousness and, in particular, psychic powers. Just one of the many strange mental abilities Slick's group studied was levitation, after Slick encountered a man in India who could seemingly levitate and teleport himself just through the power of his mind. Slick was convinced that such abilities, if harnessed, could change the world, and in particular, his own construction business. Besides all that, Slick was also keenly interested in promoting world peace. The 1950s were the start of the Cold War between the United States and the Soviet Union. With the threat of nuclear Armageddon looming on the horizon, Slick wrote a 1958 book titled Permanent Peace, in which he envisioned a united world that disarmed its nukes and established a global peacekeeping force. Slick lived more adventures throughout his life than most of us can ever dream of. In 1956, while on a diamond hunting expedition in British Guiana, his plane crashed and he ended up living off parrot meat with a native tribe for two weeks. That was also the same year Slick made his first attempt at hunt for the Yeti in the Himalayas. On that first attempt, Slick went in all gung-ho with bloodhounds and a helicopter, before the Nepalese government put a halt to his search and demanded he be sponsored by an actual organization of repute or the United States government. Slick's hunt was even further curtailed when the following year the Nepalese government issued further rules, making it illegal for foreigners to attempt to kill a Yeti. Two years later, in 1959, a State Department memo made this rule the official position of the United States as well. Slick got around all this red tape by obtaining an official letter certifying his expedition by the San Antonio Zoological Society. He spent some time searching the mountains, and although he would end up bringing back some droppings, hair, plaster casts of footprints, and numerous accounts told to him by natives, the one thing he didn't bag was a yeti. This trip did convince Slick, though, that there were two major varieties of abominable snowman. One was about eight feet tall and covered in thick black fur, while the other was smaller with reddish-brown fur. But this would also prove to be Slick's last expedition where he personally went hunting for the mysterious creature. While riding on a bus up a steep mountainside, the vehicle's brakes failed, and it wound up careening downhill. Everybody jumped out, including Slick, who ended up injuring his knees. This caused his mother to put her foot down and demand Tom quit taking such risks. So after that, Tom Slick only funded further monster hunting expeditions. In 1958, Slick funded another expedition to examine some of the alleged yeti artifacts that existed in Buddhist monasteries throughout Tibet. This included the scalp and mummified yeti hand in the monastery in Pangboche I mentioned earlier. Slick himself thought most of these yeti scalps were fakes, he was bound and determined to get some bone samples from that hand. So he turned to some unusual help to get it. Slick's last expedition had been funded by a fellow Texas millionaire, Kirk Johnson. And it just so happened that Johnson was also good friends with, as well as hunting buddy of, none other than actor Jimmy Stewart. Slick had one of the men on the expedition, Peter Burns, steal the thumb bone and phalanx from the mummified hand and replace them with human bones. Byrne then passed the bones off to Jimmy Stewart, who helped smuggle them out of the country in his luggage. Scientific analysis of those bones proved inconclusive. Some researchers thought they might have belonged to some variety of Neanderthal. Although later expeditions that tried to examine the mummified hand said it was nothing more than a mummified human hand. But keep in mind, parts of the hand those researchers were looking at really were part human, because of the switcheroo made by Peter Byrne. No one knew about the switch until the 1980s when famed cryptozoologist Lauren Coleman made this story public in his biography of Slick. For a time, all this publicity caused a boon in tourism to the monastery to see the hand. But this new popularity also caused someone to steal the hand entirely. So no further analysis can be had. In more recent years, special effects company Wedham Workshop made a replica hand based on photographs and gave that to the monastery for them to put on display in order to boost waning tourism. Following his expeditions to Nepal looking for the Abominable Snowman, Slick funded further explorations looking for other hairy hominids around the world, including Bigfoot in North America and the Orang Pendek, a smaller hairy cryptid in Sumatra. These particular cryptid sightings are interesting because the eyewitness descriptions sound an awful lot like another relatively recent discovery of another previously unknown prehistoric human species, known as Homo florensis, nicknamed the hobbits. These small, bipedal hominids were known to live throughout Indonesia as recently as 12,000 years ago. Although Slick's original intent was to hunt and kill a yeti, he changed his attitude later in life. He came to realize that all living things deserved a chance to live just as much as any human, and this included the abominable snowman. So by the time he began searching for Bigfoot and Orang Pendek, he had changed his mission from capturing or killing these creatures to simply gathering evidence and perhaps snapping a photograph. Tom Slick died in 1962 after his Beechcraft plane crashed in Montana, possibly on his way to perform a Bigfoot hunt. He was only 46 years old. But even despite Slick's death, the hunt for the abominable snowman continued, and along the way our perceptions of the creature began to change dramatically. In 1960 and 1961, despite further crackdowns by the Chinese government, explorers Edmund Hillary and Marlon Perkins managed to g- gain access to the region for more yeti hunting. It was actually on this expedition that the monks from the Pangboche Monastery agreed to allow the men to remove the scalp and mummified hand for further examination by scientists, just as long as one of them could accompany it. The monk used this opportunity to raise money to build schools in Nepal. Three separate examinations of the relics in Chicago, Paris, and London determined the scalp to be a fake made from native goat fur and the mummified hand to be human. But keep in mind, at the time, no one but Slick, Jimmy Stewart, and a few others knew that the hand had been replaced. But the reports issued by these scientists put a bit of a damper on the belief the abominable snowman might be real. Then in 1964, the creature saw a resurgence in popularity when the children's Christmas special, Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer, aired on television. This special contained a fluffy white giant they alternately called the Bumble, or the Abominable Snow Monster. Between this and an earlier Bugs Bunny cartoon, this is probably where our collective imaginations got the idea that the Yeti would be a fluffy white biped, as opposed to all the previous descriptions stating the snowman was covered in reddish or dark-colored fur. But by then, it seemed like the Yeti legend was on the decline. Throughout the 1970s, a handful of other expeditions made treks into the mountains. The Russians joined the Yeti hunt as well and sent out their own expeditions. But none of these turned up anything significant. Several of these explorers did bring back further samples of bones, teeth, hair, and fecal matter. But nothing conclusive was determined by science. Then to add further water to the fire, one of the other explorers from the famous Eric Shipton expedition told reporters he always suspected Eric faked his famous footprint for a laugh. In 2001, scientists collected a few strands of hair from a hollow cedar tree in Bhutan. This temporarily caused cryptozoologists to prick up their ears when scientists were unable to match the DNA from these hairs to any known animal. Then in 2014, those hairs were tested again, only this time scientists determined they belonged to a variety of Paleolithic polar bear. More recently, in 2017, a team of scientists issued a report that seemed to put an end to the belief that the abominable snowman might be a real giant hairy ape man. These scientists tested 24 specimens that included hair, fecal matter, and bone. They determined that all these specimens came from bears specifically a type of Himalayan brown bear known to inhabit the western plateaus. Of particular note is that this species of bear is light reddish-brown fur, which does sound similar to many descriptions of the Yeti. The idea that the Yeti might be a bear seems to have some historical precedent, too. This particular variety of Himalayan brown bear is a unique lineage that split off from other species around 650,000 years ago. The Chinese Naki people even have a special place in their culture for such bears. The Naki believe there are four main creatures with a shared lineage, humans, apes, marmots, and bears. They even have stories about some crossbreeding among the species and believe there existed a sort of half-man, half-brown bear creature. While some Tibetan tribes believe the Yeti exists as a sort of spiritual creature that can travel back and forth between realms, and this is the real reason he has been so hard to find. But as recently as 2019, the Indian Army was tweeting photos of an alleged Yeti footprint from its official Twitter account. If you ask the local Sherpas, they'll tell you they know exactly what a bear looks like, and it's most definitely not the Yeti. So although some Western scientists are convinced they have their answer, the public jury remains still out on whether the Yeti is a living fossil from some prehistoric era, some heretofore undiscovered species of ape, are simply some misidentified bears. Perhaps one place we can look to for answers is the Buddha, who taught that all creatures, big and small, have their place in the natural world. The Conspirators is written and produced by me, Nate Hale, an entirely fictional identity. Thanks so much for listening. I have some new Patreon supporters to thank. Thank you to Mel, John, Paul, Anja, Bill, Jean, Michelle, Michael, Joanna, and Martine. You're all amazing. Just a reminder the patrons of the show get access to all sorts of bonuses, including stickers, magnets, t-shirts, and our bonus mini-episodes. If you're interested in becoming a patron, I'll put a link in the show notes. Another great way you can help support the show is to subscribe, rate, and review us on Apple Podcasts. Each one of your ratings and reviews helps boost us in Apple's charts and helps spread the good word about the show to more people. If you're not on Apple, not to worry. We're also available on Spotify, Stitcher, and pretty much anywhere else you get your podcasts. You can also check out our website, theconspiratorspodcast.com, where you can listen to our entire back catalog of shows. Elsewhere on the internet, you can find us on social media as well. Follow us on Twitter, Instagram, or our Facebook page for all our latest updates. You can even send us an old-fashioned email at theconspiratorspodcast at gmail.com. Thanks again for listening, and I hope you'll be back next time.